everyone, and welcome to episode 92 of the MTG Goldfish Podcast. I'm your host, Chaz. You can find me on various websites covering Magic the Gathering in general, and in particular, the finance aspect of the game. Joining me is budget and jank deck builder, Seth, or probably better known as Seth and Olive. How's it going, Seth? <laughs> oh, what's up, Chaz? Uh, it's going. Uh, and the owner of MTG Goldfish, Richard. How are you, Richard? What's up, Chaz? Doing well. Doing okay. So we are your weekly podcast covering everything Magic the Gathering related. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, as well as mtggoldfish.com. Uh, on today's docket, we are going to be talking about standard rotation is back to once a year. So interesting. Uh, so we're going to talk about it. Uh, yeah, standard is now back to our old model of rotation. For everyone that doesn't know exactly how that works, we will explain it as we talk about it. We have Commander 2016 spoilers. Already we're back in some sort of spoiler season, so that's a great time for us. We get to talk about new cards, discuss them, and we will discuss a specific uh, few cards from Commander 2016. That will bring us into uh, some interesting DQ'd and rules lawyering uh, instances that we wanted to touch on. Uh, bring us into some tournament talk. Flash and Delirium doing very well in Standard right now. And Vehicles and Vintage. And we'll wrap it up with uh, Goldfish, uh, Fishmail rather. Uh, we have a few that we'd like to discuss. And as always, uh, send them in every week and we will discuss them. So let's just dive right in. Standard rotation is back to once a year. So essentially what happens is Shadows over Innistrad... And BFZ will rotate at the same time. BFZ will be around another six months, but the SOI block will still rotate in the fall like it was supposed to. Um, just break it down specifically for us, Richard, how exactly we will see the rotation. Uh, I think Seth should break it down because you wrote a large okay. article oh, yeah, <laughs> about this, explaining yeah. the pros and cons of the approach. So why don't you take it, Seth? Okay, so one thing that's been interesting about this is it made me re realize how many new players we actually have in Magic, because a lot of people seem to not remember that it was only like a year and a half ago that this is exactly how things used to be. So this really isn't a new thing. Instead, we're going back to how things were in the past. So it's really simple. It actually simplifies rotation a lot. Basically, only in the fall will there be rotation when the fall set comes out rotates once a year and four sets go out. So a whole year's worth of sets will rotate. So next fall, we lose all Shadows over Innistrad, all of Battle for BFC. Zendikar. Yep. And then the following year, we'll lose all of Kaladash and all of Amonkhet block. So it just keeps going like that. So this does a few things. Uh, the big news for me and the, the big positive is I think it makes it easier on casual players, makes it easier on budget-conscious players because... There's a lot to keep up on with double rotations. With the old, which is now the new rotation schedule, you only have to worry about selling your cards once a year. You buy your cards, you buy your decks. If you want to sell your cards before rotation, you do it in the spring, towards the end of the winter, sometime in there. And you just go through that process every year. Having multiple rotations makes it twice as complicated, takes twice as much effort to keep up on all these changes, keep your collection up to date, avoid losing a ton of money. So that is the biggest positive, I think, is it really helps... Uh, pretty much everyone except tournament grinders. On the other hand, if you're a tournament grinder or if you are a content producer, it's kind of bad because rotations mean new formats, means that old cards that you're kind of sick of playing against go away, uh, and it means there's always something new to talk about. But I think this change is a massive positive for a huge group of players and then a small negative for a small group of really enfranchised players. So I think overall it's a really positive change in my view. Richard, what do you think? So I agree with Seth, and I think Seth will talk about this a bit later, but the changes to Redemption, where Kaladesh is only redeemable until uh, Admin Cut block, with the new found time in standard i think there's going to be a big problem because basically for the back half of standard you're not going to get any redeemable cards from magic online but i'll just let seth talk about that but i want to talk about this change in general i don't know if it's a net positive or a net negative like seth said there are pros and cons and it depends on which camp you're in but i'm gonna put my tinfoil hat on and say i'm highly suspicious of this it seems like we did not have enough time 
to gather sufficient data to roll back the change. It seems like if they were going to experiment with this, they would, you know, allow more than what basically two, three rotations to happen, one extra rotation before they pull the plug on it. So something has me suspicious here, and it's possible that you know the sales numbers weren't looking good or something, and they just panicked and like flipped back to the old schedule. Uh, as opposed to seeing, you know, what some of the faults may have been like, you know, BFZ was a boring block. <laughs> so I'm a little suspicious of this. I, I think it's too soon to for them to gather enough data for this. Like how many how many players did they talk to uh, to figure out that this was a problem? Were players even aware of this? So I'm a little suspicious about this. But uh, I really hope standard remains balanced because... Uh, I don't want to return to the days of Siege Rhino and Collected Company where a broken deck sits there and sits there for uh, a year plus because there is no rotation to fix it. So overall, I, I'm not sure, but I'm very suspicious. Very, very suspicious. This, this seems way too soon to be rolling back and calling it a failure. That's that's actually the first thought I had too because... And here's a couple points of interest. Like you said, Richard, I, I don't even think we had any data to go off, right? Like, was there even a rotation to definitively say, well, this is probably not going to pan out for the long term? It just felt like, well, it just felt like the reason I asked that is because, I mean, we were talking about this over the last, you know, the course of the last few podcasts. And it's actually kind of funny that last week we were talking about fire selling BFZ cards and like the whole rotation because we were working under the assumption of the old rotation. Um, but we'll get into that in a second. The huge point of interest for me was it felt like we were going all in, right? We were going all in. They wanted to bring back – they wanted to like drastically reduce the barrier to standards. So that's why we had masterpieces. That's why we had the rotation change. Like Everything was changed in conjunction with each other to bring down that cost of barrier all at one time. And it just kind of felt like, well, if we're going all in, why – why pull back the reins all of a sudden on one aspect of that when we didn't actually really see that in you know come into play for like you said Richard a couple rotations uh, to to really see if it was going to work? I want to say I think that this change on its face will make standard cheaper for a lot of people. I mean, under the two a year schedule, that's twice as much you have to update your decks you have to make sure you have a tournament playable deck in the spring and in the fall when you buy cards uh like the pro tour decks you're buying cards from this past pro tour and then uh gideon under the old schedule would be rotating in just a few months the price is going to be plummeting so i think on its face it's a good thing for prices and works to make standard cheaper but i am really scared when you consider this change in conjunction with uh, almost the elimination of redemption from Magic Online. I think paper players uh, drastically underestimate how much redemption from Magic Online is impacting the prices of their cards and keeping those prices in check uh, because that offers an avenue for more supply to enter the paper marketplace after the supply stops entering the marketplace from the normal paper sources. Uh, a year into a set's life, no one's buying booster boxes. I don't even know if your local game store, some of the local game stores near me might not even have, uh, for example, Battle for Zendikar booster boxes anymore. And if they do, they're just like selling out the last few that are left because they're selling Kaladesh now and they're selling Conspiracy. So that source of supply is gone. No one's drafting Battle for Zendikar anymore. So you have this big chunk of time, the entire second year of a set's life in standard, where supply is basically minimal. And when you have a Jace Friends Prodigy or a card like that that just absolutely goes nuts with something that's printed in a newer set, under the old system of redemption, you have the ability to get more cards. If prices get too out of whack, People like me or big vendors will redeem sets from Magic Online because it's going to be profitable. All of a sudden, that source of supply is off the table. So there's literally nothing we can do to get new copies into the marketplace after a certain point in time. So I'm worried that this is going to undo a lot of the gains we have seen with masterpieces lowering prices for standard. And I don't think it's because the rotation, the rotation is fine and by itself would make standard cheaper. But when you combine that with the drastic reduction in redemption times, I think it's a recipe for disaster and we might see mythic rares, especially be 
incredibly expensive in their second year in standard if Wizards sticks with this new redemption schedule. Yeah, we, we had that criticism when they uh, rolled out the new redemption changes. You know, oh, it's like six more months uh, of expensive mythics. But now with the kind of extended standard back to once a year, that's up to a year of crazy expensive mythics. And one criticism I had for your article, Seth, was we kind of pulled this 2,000 sets redeemed a week out of nowhere. And then we concluded uh, about, I think, 2.3 million uh, of booster boxes were being redeemed, essentially. And one way Wizards can get ahead of this and kind of reassure us is give us the numbers, right? If they come out and say, hey, redemption only accounts for 5% of all standard cards in circulation, then that means we've overblown this redemption thing and there's actually no impact. However, if it's actually 50%, 30%, 80%, uh, they probably won't release the numbers because it's so bad, <laughs> but it means it'll be a huge impact on standard. So if this change really does not mean anything, Wizards you know, would be smart to just go ahead and say that and give some numbers to kind of stop the, the fear-mongering or everyone you know, kind of just going off in their imagination. Uh, I wish I could have given a more solid number, but you kind of hinted at the problem. Wizards doesn't release any data on uh, print runs, how many sets are being redeemed. So the number I used in the article was based on having conversations with people that are very entrenched in the Magic Online marketplace, big vendors, bot owners, people like that. And this is a number, uh, an estimate that I've been getting from them. So I can't really use that number uh, with 100% certainty, but it's really the best we got to go on based on the fact that Wizards is, doesn't like to tell us that kind of stuff for some reason. But I think you're right. If Wizards wants to calm everyone's fears about these changes, releasing some hard numbers uh, could be helpful. And you're right. I mean, from hanging out as well, for doing this podcast as long as we have, I mean, I was one of those paper players that basically had no idea well, not had no no idea, but generally didn't appreciate how much you know supply does come from redemption. You're absolutely right, Seth. So I think it, it like I said, it seemed like we were going all in, and then like last second, it seemed like the redemption change was made in contrary to what they were doing with masterpieces and these these shortened uh, these shortened. Uh, rotations and then it's kind of like we're just like pulling back the reins like on a couple things when it seemed like in the beginning we were all in on this it was a lot of this was geared towards was geared towards you know bringing down standard now you're absolutely right i think i think you're right here richard i think maybe we're not getting the whole picture here and i am kind of concerned that maybe you know they looked at some numbers uh some sales numbers and they were not pleased and if they figured well if we can kind of nip this in the butt now we won't have to deal with this and we can just, you know, say, you know, it wasn't going to work in this model. I'm also disappointed that we don't have a modern pro tour again. Right. <laughs> I mean, the the entire like <laughs> when they got rid of the modern pro tour, everyone was upset because we didn't get the full picture. And the full picture was they were moving to two rotations, two set blocks, which meant standard pro tours were going to be exciting every time because of rotations right. and all this stuff. Uh, and now that they've undid that change, we're going to have some boring pro tours. We're going to have pro tours that are, it's been the same standard format for like nine months. We're seeing Spellqueller added to the collected company deck. And that's the, the big innovation out of the pro tour. <laughs> we added in one new card. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a little disappointed again, because uh, that was the reason I think everyone was on board with getting rid of modern is it made sense with quick rotations and two set blocks as far as the pro tour. And now that's gone. So bring back the modern pro tour. Yeah. <laughs> There's definitely some, like we talked about, pros and cons. I mean, you brought up one thing, though, Seth. You said that it it's still a positive for the players in terms of cost. But we did discuss that, yes, people are buying cards at a increased rate, but they're generally spending less money, or, you know, less on these singles overall. So I just don't know. You know, obviously, things go back to their old cyclical you know, nature. We kind of are accustomed to for so long i just don't know you're right i mean it if they don't change the redemption in specific we could see some really you know big uh mythic price spikes in particular and like something like we'll just use torrential gear hulk for the pro tour 
that may not ever go back, right? Like, because in this, if they're with this announcement and with the redemption announcement, it's like if a card spikes, we normally, you know, we just talked about this, you know, cards go down, you know, they usually go down after Pro Tour. They probably won't go down so much uh, after all these uh, all these announcements. Yeah. So remember Jace Vrin's prodigy. Rem- right. Remember his absurd price tag. Great point. That's with redemption. Without redemption, everyone would be forced to crack boxes of origins and uh, hope they pull a Jace Vrin's prodigy. So I'm a little worried if there's an overpowered card, who's going to be cracking these boxes to get this mythic into supply? And like Seth said, no one's drafting anymore. Your store might even have the boxes. So it'll be an interesting time to see what happens uh, you know, to the price of this because now we have... Uh, masterpieces in the mix, so maybe that will do something about this. But yeah. uh, if Jace Jace comes around in Abmonkhet uh, or Aether Revolt or something, uh, watch out. Yeah, I mean, I'm especially worried about those cards that pop up in the second year. Like right now, yes. Torrential Gear Hulk. Yes, it spiked in price, but right now Kaladash is brand new. You could buy a hundred boxes of Kaladash yeah. with no problem at MSRP if you wanted to. But that's not necessarily true if this happened at next year's Pro Tour. I don't know how easily you're going to get those boxes and uh, just how much supply could enter the market because uh, we just lose that self-correcting mechanism that Redemption offered because that was just such a great way. Uh, there was a time I used Jace, which Richard... Uh, mentioned in the article but there was a time where paper sets when jace really spiked went up to almost 350 dollars at retail for magic origins at the same time the magic online set barely budged it was like 150 dollars so if you needed a jace you had this way to get it for cheap and even if you didn't do it personally someone was going to do that because it was profitable which brings that supply into the market so i'm really worried about what'll happen to the cards from Kaladash and from Ether Revolt at next fall's Pro Tour, if there's something that all of a sudden finds this synergy, finds this deck, becomes a new hot thing, uh, we're going to see prices potentially get way out of whack. And it's it's kind of a scary possibility. And I'm doubly scared because with the recent changes on Magic Online, they've been willing to talk about treasure chests, even willing to suggest if it doesn't work, they will walk it back. But they have been radio silence as far as redemption changes. They don't seem interested in even acknowledging that they change the redemption schedule and definitely not interested in having a meaningful conversation about the pros and cons of that change. So it seems sort of set in stone based on their reaction to it so far from my perspective. All right, let's move on to some happier news. Yes. Today marks the start of commander 2016 spoilers. So Commander 2016 releases November 11th, and we have four color commanders this time around, and there will be 56 new magic cards distributed amongst the five, the five pre-constructed decks. So let's get into spoilers. We got our first general today. We got our first general today. Atraxa Praetor's Voice. Green, white, blue, black. So everything but red. 4-4, legendary creature. Angel Horror, Flying Vigilance, Death Touch, Lifelink. At the beginning of your end step, proliferate. What do you guys think as the first commander revealed here? What do you think of Atraxa? I'm going to have to get a print of this. (laughs) The card art is awesome. Really, really awesome. Uh, And as far as a card, I'm cool with it. I think that's extremely well-costed for a creature like this. Uh, especially if you have anything to do with like, you know, it's just gravy that it proliferates every turn. But this is a pretty efficient creature right here, especially as a general. And green, I... so, you know, I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty excited. Lightly green, lightly green. <laughs> I'm a big fan of proliferate, so I like that aspect of the card. But otherwise, it doesn't excite me that much. If you just uh-huh. want like efficient creatures. Uh, those are great for constructed, but there aren't really what I personally want to be doing in Commander, like just playing 
stuff that's good with a lot of keywords. But I am excited, though, because this card is the first step, and the rest will roll out over spoiler season, I'm sure. But the first step towards fixing the Nephilim problem, where we've never had four-color commanders before because they didn't make the Nephilim legendary because commander wasn't a thing when they originally printed <laughs> them. But So this is the first time we've had four-color commanders. Those literally did not exist in the entire game of Magic. So that by itself is big news. Like you can play entire new color combinations that weren't available before, or you had to play like five colors and just not play a color in your actual deck. So I'm excited for what these cards mean, even though Atraxa, eh, not that exciting to me personally. Yeah, I think I agree with both of you. Chaz, the art is crazy. If you guys are listening or girls are listening on the podcast, go check out this art. Uh, It's super crazy, but as a creature, it's basically a proliferate stick. It's a four mana, four, four with a bunch of keywords that aren't really relevant. And then you get proliferate. So super friends decks, uh, infect decks, just anything that cares about counters. Doubling season, this is a green card. So it's it's a utility creature. I mean, it dies to Sarah Angel in combat. Not that someone <laughs> will be playing Sarah Angel, but uh, the art is super, super sweet. So the best thing about the new commander sets is the new cards. And the new cards always have new art. So yeah, let's talk new mechanics. So there's uh, Kaidel, Chosen of Crufix. Kaidel, Chosen of Crufix, two green and a blue. So four converted mana costs, two, three, legendary creature, human wizard. Tap to add a colorless mana to your mana pool for each card you've drawn this turn. And it has the keyword partner. You can have two commanders if both have partner. So another way they've solved the four-color commander problem is you can have basically two commanders, and your color identity is all of those colors. So this, I think, is super sweet, and this is what I'm excited for. And this card is absurdly broken. Yeah, they, yeah, they've definitely thrown some curveballs uh, towards the commander players over the last uh, couple of commander products, and then, you know, Conspiracy had its mechanics. I, I gotta tell you, I really love this. I don't know why it just well. It's like you guys just said, right? Like if you're not super excited about the four color commander cards in specific, now you can use two creatures that you might be excited for and want to use in tandem to essentially create the four colors for yourself for your, for deck building purposes. And yeah, Kaidel. I mean, I, this. I don't know why they, they. Whenever I see like crew fix or like blue or green, there's always like something busted <laughs> about the card <laughs> like you see uh, courser you see what was the uh the other one profit right the uh what was the god oh actually crufix right well uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 and those are those all were like super successful in commander and it just seems like they like it's like they make these blue green crufix cards that like end up having to be banned so it's like i don't know but yeah it's awesome I'm a big fan of the partner mechanic because of the flexibility it allows. So not only do these cards enable four color decks, but you can also play uh, Krufix with Siddhar Kondo of Chumura, the the green white legendary and play a straight three color Bant deck or play it with the is it one and have a teamer deck, or you can just play it by itself and have a two color deck. So it's a way you can enable four color decks while also giving two-color decks, and three-color combinations, new commanders as well. So I really like that because I think if they just made all four-color commanders, they would be pretty limited in their appeal. Like, yeah, they're cool. People are going to want to try four-color decks. But breaking them up and having commanders that are four-color commanders while also kind of sneakily being wedge commanders and two-color commanders is super awesome. Yeah, and before everyone asks... Commander damage is tracked separately, so each commander of your partner is counted separately. Uh, there are costs, so if one dies, only the, the cost of that one gets increased, not the other one. And in general, the commanders behave like you expect them to behave. Uh, one thing I really wish they did was update the oracle text of a whole bunch of cards when they release partner. <laughs> like, how sweet would it be if Gisela and Bruna had partner? 
and uh, you could play them both as your commander. That'd be sweet. Uh, the brothers. Oh, that would be cool. What, what were those red brothers from? Like, Yamazaki. Yeah, Yamazaki. that would be so sweet. Yep. Uh, a tag. That team would be cool. Mechanic, if you can pay like oh. a mana or something, and then swap your commanders around. So partners is yeah. really interesting, and I hope they do more with it in the future. Oh, that would be really cool. And if they like even took it further, because there's like siblings in Magic. Like there was a uh, Kamal back in the. I mean, this is dating me. Uh, well, I guess uh, who read the story and like Jessica and Kamal, they could have like really like updated and made some really cool pairs. Gissa and Giraffe, just take all my oh, money that right be... now. I'll pay like five hundred dollars <laughs> for the stupid precon with Gissa and Giraffe as partners. That would be sweet. The the only thing I don't like is. I know these things are going to destroy magic online, so we probably won't get to play with them for like a year or something while they're trying to figure out how to have two commanders at the same time. So that part's depressing because I really want to play these on Commander Clash, but I have just no hope that that's going to happen in the reasonable future. I mean, they couldn't get Command Tower to work with the one commander. (laughs) What are the options this will work with, too? This is a lot looking good. That is funny. All right, and we have another new mechanic. It comes on Sublime Exhalation. Uh, six and a white sorcery. It has the keyword undaunted. This spell costs one less to cast for each opponent. Destroy all creatures. So three opponents means this is a four mana wrath. Uh, if you're playing with six other people, it's a one mana wrath. Great for multiplayer. Does not break constructed in any way. What do you guys think? Yeah, I like this. I mean, it's it's nothing groundbreaking, but I do like like you said, Richard. The the more the merrier. Well, now I just get like a two mana wrath, and and it's not in any way going to affect constructed because obviously construct is one person versus one person. So you want to pay six mana for a wrath? Go right ahead. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is pretty cool. I, I like this. It's it's subtle, uh, but again, it's not like I'm like blown out of my chair. But I do like the mechanic overall. Yeah, I mean, the card itself, whatever, I guess. In a four-player game, you have the fringe upside that it's a single white Wrath of God, which is kind of unique. They're usually double white or even sometimes double white plus another color. Uh, But mostly, I just like that Wizards has gotten really good over the last year or two of making these multiplayer mechanics that are powerful and fun in multiplayer, but don't really damage constructors. So, uh, constructed. So I just wanted to give Wizards a shout out, essentially, for figuring out how to do this. We didn't really see this as much in the very first Commander decks, but they've kind of figured this out with Commander and with Conspiracy as well. How to make cards that are very powered up when you're playing four-player matches or eight-player matches that are very good, even staple level. They just don't do anything when you're playing in Legacy. So I really appreciate that they've figured out how to do that. So those are all the cards we're going to cover on the cast today, but there's a ton of new cards. There's 14 cards they released, a whole bunch of legendaries with partner. So you can check them out at mtg.fish slash c16, and you can check out my favorite card. It's a Boros card, spoiler alert. Or uh, (laughs) there's a new Goblin, uh, there's a Ludovic reference, and Ludovic's actually going to be in the set as well. And there's even a throwback to Mirage. Yes, the old Mirage expansion. So check that out. I wish we had more time on the cast to talk about it, but we have more stuff to talk about today. Yep. So that will bring us into, so we alluded to in the beginning of the cast, these these instances. Now, this is Oliver to you. He was DQ'd for, we'll call it, quote unquote, bribery. And then we have the Kent Ketter incident where there was some, not that it was necessary. well, it's not necessarily cheating, but some... in high-end rules lawyering that we don't normally see on camera all too often, so we wanted to break it down. So, so Richard, bring us into the whole DQ for bribery thing, and let's get your take on it. Okay, so Oliver 2 was DQ'd from the GP, and Wizards released an official statement, and basically what happened was Oliver... Uh, and his opponent were playing in the, the last round, and he needed the win for, for a pro point. Uh, so he asked his opponent to concede, and then uh, his opponent conceded. But a judge overheard the word PayPal. Uh, so they, he, the judge went and interviewed the two players separately. They had different stories, and the judge concluded it was bribery, and Oliver was DQ'd. 
I think this is a good time for Wizards to address concessions and splitting and bribery. Basically, it happens all the time. And what happened in this case was they did it incorrectly. They said the wrong words. They did the wrong dance. Basically, his opponent wasn't in the in crowd and knew the exact words to say, and they both got DQ'd. I think it's dumb, right? Either outright allow it, allow people to split however they want, allow them to discuss prizes, or disallow it altogether. No matter what you say, if this was your intent, you're both DQ'd. You know, there's no reason why Oliver got DQ'd, but, you know, tens, if not hundreds of other people this weekend did the exact same thing, but got away with it because they said the right words, right? If the intent is there, either make the intent good, allow it, or just disallow it. And I think Wizards needs to, needs to step up with this. They did it with their concessions for the top eight. Uh, they changed the system so that uh, you don't need to game it anymore. And I think they need to do the same approach here because this is just really bad. And it looks really bad for the game as well. You know, these scandals of bribery that happen and it happens all the time anyway. And it just looks really bad. Yeah, it's. I think it's ridiculous. It's. It just becomes so technical and people are doing the exact same thing with the exact same outcome uh, like you said again and again but they if you say the right words apparently it's perfectly legal but if you say the wrong words even though you're trying to achieve the same goal and come to the same conclusion then apparently you're disqualified from the tournament i think it's ridiculous personally I think that they should just make it how it is on Magic Online, where splitting prizes is supported. And on Magic Online, someone has to concede. There's no, someone wins and someone loses. There's no intentional draws on Magic Online. So basically, on Magic Online, you can split however you want to. And concessions can be part of that. But you can't use anything outside of the prizes for the game. So if there's 12 packs in the prize pool and three qualifier points, you can say, I'll give you uh, eight packs and I'll take four. If you give me the three QPs and concede, that's perfectly legal. Uh, but you can't say, I'll give you my foil Jason mind sculptor for my collection. If you give me those QPs. So I think a system like that could be beneficial for paper because it really just makes this system of uh, haves and have nots. And it punishes new players to the, tournament scene that don't know the technical right words to say to like skirt this rule Uh, so i think it just it it strengthens the good old boy network of the pro tour in this scene where people that are in the in crowd and know the right things to say can use this to their advantage when the people that aren't in that crowd get punished for it yeah i I, i'm in full agreement here i I think we need a specific set of guidelines so this doesn't keep happening because you're right it's 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 not very good to see at all and you're kind of setting this this situation for a lot of players that like you said it happens all the time and when it happens randomly like this and especially like on a lower stage and these people you know these players all of a sudden have these feel bad moments where they're outright just dq'd you know we need we need set guidelines to kind of eliminate this uh this issue and you're right. Like if it's if it's said one way, it's accepted. If it's, it's said another way, it's not accepted. But the, the outcome is still the same. Then we definitely need to have what do you do in this situation? Like what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, and, and make it just very clear for people. Like when when you're you're at a tournament and you're like, oh, do, would you like to split? Or you know, you say it one way, and you know that way is fine. But another way, same outcome. I'm DQ'd now, going all the way to a DQ, you know, you're just going to have a lot of horrible moments. And I think you brought up MTGO, right, Seth? Yeah, you brought up the fact that when it comes to splitting the actual prize structure of a tournament, and that's all fine, when it starts to get out of that realm, I can totally see that it becomes an issue. So you you have to just clearly outline that. So moving on to... Something that Wizards didn't have a direct hand in, but a lot of people on Twitch and on Reddit are calling quite scummy. We have the Kent Kenter, or Kent Ketter incident, in which his opponent plays a Rest in Peace, and uh, Kent is playing a Dredge deck. So his opponent plays a Rest in Peace. Kent moves his hand to move his graveyard into exile. Uh, his opponent is busy writing down his life total from uh, a Painland used to cast Rest in Peace. And then Kent slides the card back from exile into the graveyard and then declares that his opponent missed the trigger 
and that uh, his his card is not exiled. They call the judge, and the judge ruled in Kent's favor. And a lot of people are seeing this as rules lawyering at the highest, highest level. What do you guys think about this? I agree. If you're like you said, the game state hasn't been has to be maintained between both parties. Even if you cast a card and you say nothing, and I look at you as the opponent, and you are signaling me that you are accepting the card and its trigger. So in this instance, Kent Ketter slid the confrogate out of the graveyard into some other zone away from the graveyard. That's acknowledging to me that you are accepting the card. If I look down to write something like my life total real quick because I cracked a fetch or something like that, and you now slide the card back in the brief, uh, you can see it in the video, a brief, like it would had to be what, a few seconds, right? That you slide the card back and say, I missed the trigger. Then we, we have an issue and then it becomes a he said, she said, or he said, he said in this matter. And, you know, you're going to lawyer me on a, on a game state that we both agreed on. Whether it be verbally or in the action of sliding your card, because what what would you what, what would you have any reason to touch your card in the graveyard, other than I just played a rest in peace? Like, are you just arbitrarily moving your card? No, you're accepting the fact that I played rest in peace. I I mean I agree with you. It's definitely comes across as scummy and rules rules lawyering. And personally, I really I hate that, and it drives me crazy. And I think. Uh, the game is better off without that kind of rules lawyering playing a part in tournaments. At the same time, I saw a lot of people on Reddit saying, oh, Wizards is going to look into this and there's going to be punishment handed down. And in Kent's defense, I think he's being scummy and he's rules lawyering, but I don't think he cheated. Like, I don't think you can say this person cheated like when you have someone that's uh, stacking their deck, for an example, or some of those other cheating scandals. So I don't think we can see a real punishment unless there's something with the interaction with the judge, if he lied to the judge or something, which we don't know. But as far as like his actions, I don't think it counts as cheating, technically. And just a reminder, everyone, if you're playing on the tournament scene, make sure to announce your triggers to avoid that situation. Like, yes, Kent was being a rules lawyer and I wish he wasn't doing that. But at the same time, one way you can make sure that your opponent's not going to try to rules lawyer you is by doing your best to announce all your triggers. So you don't get into a situation where someone can be scummy and try to pull one over on you. Yeah. I hope a high level judge or even wizards themselves comments on this, just so we understand the situation because there's a lot of unknowns going here. So, like uh, Seth said, I, I believe Kent's thought was, you know, rest in peace was Cass. Uh, let me move my card to exile real quick. And then he's like, oh, wait, but my opponent didn't announce the trigger, so he slides it back. You know, if your opponent didn't announce the trigger, you don't need to exile your card. So the judge was called, and I'm not sure if the judge knows whether the card was slid back and forth. So the question is, if your opponent does an action... In response to your trigger that you didn't announce, does that count as acknowledgement of the trigger? So to me, I'm interested in that answer to know what it was. Like, is is Kent sliding his card uh, an acknowledgement of the trigger, therefore the trigger is enforced? Or does that not matter at all and the, the fact that the opponent didn't announce the trigger is all that matters? So I really hope someone, uh, you know, a high level steps in and tells us what is supposed to happen and whether... You know, it was just rules lowering or, you know, something wrong actually happened. Everyone will know now to announce your triggers all the time. <laughs> uh, question, quick, quick, quick question for you. Same situation. Kent never touches his card. His opponent plays it, uh, goes to write down the life loss from the pain land, which is another game action. Uh, would you feel, would that be fine? That's fine. That's missed trigger. Okay. Yeah, I think that's fine. Yeah, I think the simple act of... Why else would he touch the the card in his graveyard right after a rest in peace was played? Like the the timing just was lined up too perfectly not to say that he just arbitrarily just moved his conf- uh, conflagrate out of his you know his graveyard for no reason. So I don't know. Yeah, announce your triggers and like I said, I mean it, it really is up to both players to maintain. The board state. Now, I, I don't think consider it cheating either. I think it's a really high level of w- rules lawyering. So unfortunately, I mean, even if Wizards 
does step in and say something. I mean, what what that doesn't really help the opponent in this case. Like, yeah, it might be a warning or something like that to Ken Ketter, but unfortunately, I don't think the outcome changes. And I mean, the good news is in the game, it really didn't matter because the person who played rest in peace, the next turn played another rest in peace and the trigger was certainly remembered. So it didn't actually impact the outcome of the game one way or another. Uh, So if that makes you feel any better about it. Yep. So that brings us into, we want to quickly talk about the tournament roundup. Uh, We're going to, you know, some uh, GPs were this weekend. We saw a lot of blue white flash a good amount of delirium in in both uh, of these uh, tournaments. And Richard actually wanted to bring up some vehicles in vintage. We don't see, we don't get to, we we don't, well, we haven't got to talk about legacy. We rarely ever do. Sorry, Richard. But at least we get to talk about vintage. And apparently vehicles are good in vintage. So quickly, let's just talk about the overwhelming performance of delirium and blue white flash uh real quickly and just your thoughts in general on where standard is right after the pro tour so richard coming out of the pro tour in sets by the number articles uh, article he said that white blue flash was the best deck performing i think it was like nine and one in the hands of multiple players and apparently everyone listened because <laughs> at the grand prix six of eight decks were white blue flash the other two were mardu vehicles and justice mardu vehicles won (laughs) but there was a ton of white blue flash over there and what's more interesting is across the world at grand prix providence white blue flash had a good showing but it didn't seem as dominant and there was a lot of black green delirium which a lot of pros are saying is the best deck provided you don't play against marvel etherworks marvel so it's actually very interesting, you know, where we're coming straight out of the Pro Tour and Standard seems like it's still up in the air. Uh, there's still many decks that can be built and there's no consensus best deck yet. On one side of the world, it was White Blue Flash. On the other side, uh, it was not so much and it had more of a delirium feel to it. So Standard, I think, is in a pretty good place and there's nothing too uh, absurdly busted at the moment. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think... I saw the blue-white flash stack coming. If you looked at the the data behind the Pro Tour, that one was pretty obvious that it lined up really well with the format. Also, green-black delirium was very popular. It's supported by a lot of big pros from some of the big teams. So I don't think that's a surprise. To me, the thing that really sticks out is the complete lack of energy decks. I, I just did a quick search. Uh, out of the 128 lists between the two GPs in the top 64s, there was a single mention of energy, and it was a green-red energy deck. So Etherworks Marvel went from being 20% of the Pro Tour to being nothing in the course of one week. So I, I find that interesting, and maybe that deck is good when people aren't prepared for it, but it seems pretty beatable when people are playing Spell Quellers and Negates and uh, cards that just counter your Etherworks Marvel. So I, that was a stunning fall from best deck at the Pro Tour to, or most played deck at the Pro Tour to not even an afterthought and the first big GP weekend after the Pro Tour. Yeah, and I'm going to you know, further support your 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 point there, Richard, about you have on one side, you have blue-white flash. On the other side, you have delirium. And you feel like, you know, standard is still looking good. There's no real far and away best deck because it, it's funny because in paper, on one side, you have this deck. On the other side, you have this deck. There's still other decks being played in between. But I'm going to also bring in, on if you look online... Like, yeah, you see Blue White Flash, you see Delirium, but then you see, like, all these other other lists that are 5-0-ing, you know, standard leagues. Like, almost, e- you see, like, different lists almost every single time it's updated, and you can look on the Goldfish site. I mean, you're still seeing zombies, black, red, blue, white. You see the tokens list, you see some energy lists, you see Colossus list, Dynavolt Tower list. So, it's like, you have three different, like, dynamics going on here. And I, and I like what I'm seeing, and I, I still think there's a lot of viable things going on in the standard, whether it just be one, it just a happens chance that this particular tournament everyone wanted to bring blue white flash on the other side of the the country or the world rather, uh, everyone wanted to bring delirium, and online they just want to play anything. So I, I'm like what I've, I'm seeing, and I still like uh, the fact that there's so many viable options to standard, and I think. Uh, 
Wizards doing is doing a great job with these uh, two set blocks blocks thus far uh, to kind of keep it, you know, really interesting and and still fresh. Yeah. So more exciting. So I was browsing Twitter the other day. <laughs> <laughs> and Island Swamp, who writes our vintage series on Goldfish, uh, a, a reader uh, tweeted at him, and it was a picture of a turn one Jace the Mind Sculptor from the opponent getting killed by a turn one Fleet Wheel Cruiser. And Fleet Wheel Cruiser is a four-man of 5-3 haste vehicle. And I was like, oh, cute, someone's doing against the odds in vintage. <laughs> and lo and behold, <laughs> this weekend, uh, e- Eternal Weekend, the Vintage Championships, several car shops decks... Uh, in the top eight, and uh, car shops is a thing. One inventor's fair, three feet fleet wheel cruisers, and a Sky Sovereign console flagship. Vintage playable. Anything is playable when you have Mishiro's Workshop. <laughs> Anything. So anytime you see any artifact, no matter the cost, it's probably playable in vintage. That is my takeaway. I have no analysis for you, but <laughs> cars in vintage. Well- it's actually kind of funny because we talked about this before we recorded, but now I'm realizing, I mean, didn't people play that, uh, what was that Panther called? Slash from? Panther. Yeah, isn't this just a better f- Slash Panther? I'm starting to just realize that. It's like a legitimately better Slash Panther. <laughs> slash but, Panther was viable. Listen, listen to yourself, Jazz. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if better... A legitimately better Slash Panther automatically means vintage playable. Uh, but I guess it does. I, no, well, I, I'm looking at it right here. It, <laughs> it's, uh, I, just, I just think the bar is kind of low if uh, Slash Panther is what we're trying to get over. It, it's, the, it's, it's the lands. It's all, it's all about the lands. You have Ancient Tomb. You have Mishra's Workshop. So it's really true that any somewhat janky artifact is pretty good when you can just play it on turn one. So I think that <laughs> that's uh, I think that that's the big takeaway. It, it doesn't really change my opinion of vehicles. Uh, it just proves again that making three plus mana on the first turn of the game is a powerful thing to do. We've seen it with Eldrazi and Modern. We see it in Legacy Sneak and Show decks and so forth, and we see it in Vintage with with the car shops decks. So. We're not even oh. done yet. We still got Ether Revolt. We still got another block of artifacts to go. <laughs> so always can't we can't make it out of an artifact block without like something going <laughs> crazy like this. We just can't. Uh, all right. Uh, I think that brings us into some fish mail. So let's try to get through these, and we will answer all the ones uh, for this week. All right. So this is where we answer your questions here at the hashtag MTG Fishmail. So if you have a question, tweet at MTG Goldfish with the hashtag MTG Fishmail. Uh, if we don't answer your questions on air, we'll answer them on Twitter or via email just to, to cut back on the amount of time we have for Fishmail every week. So first question from Jackman1360. Do you think that energy has potential to break modern? Any cards come to mind? I don't think that energy synergizes well enough with anything that's already in modern uh so i don't expect there to be much energy in modern the thing is the things that energy do well uh electrostatic pummeler turn four kills etherworks marvel dumping big creatures we have things in modern that do that already and you don't have to pay the cost of playing bad energy cards you got blighted agent that you can throw pump spells down and win in turn two you have through the breach where you can put your emerald directly into play with haste on turn four if you have a uh, some sort of mana accelerant so i don't really see it personally yeah i don't want to say it will never happen because i'm assuming we might see some energy in aether revolt so there could be something potentially powerful there but i'm with you seth i, I just you know, like, there's some good cards, like Voltaic Brawler, you have stuff like that, but, I mean, it's like, you're still playing one mana three threes in Modern, so why would I play, you know, something like Voltaic Brawler? I don't know, we'll see. I think a card like that could be good enough, but, I mean, there's a lot of options. Yeah, I don't think energy will succeed as a fair mechanic, and even some of the unfair strategies, like Seth said, there are better ones, but something like the Reservoir, if you can find some weird combo deck eventually maybe with uh ether revolt support but that's the only thing i can think of because pummeler is just a worse glistener elf marvel is just a worse 
sneak attack or not sneak attack uh, through the breach. So I, I don't think any of those cards will see will see play. So next question from at Joseph Burris. What do you think of paper vintage cube with money on the line at a Wizards event? Uh, didn't they do that? What was the event? Did, did either of you remember this? Was it World? Oh, I think it was World. Was it was yeah, it Worlds a couple World, years yeah. ago? I think it's awesome. I would love to have them do that again. I I yeah. love cube drafting, and I love to see high level players do it. I think it's a really if they're gonna do limited on these events, I think cube draft would be near the top of limited formats. I'd want to see. Absolutely. Next question from Shuguantu. Frontier is picking up some steam as a new format. How much steam does a format need to be listed on the site? So if you make a deck, uh, you could actually choose Frontier format. We don't have Frontier tournament results because there simply aren't that many. (laughs) So to answer your question, when there are lots of tournament results for Frontier, uh, we'll we'll put them on the site and you can have a metagame section. Yeah, I, I mean... Not to say that Frontier may not end up being a thing. I'm kind of in a wait-and-see mode with Frontier at this juncture. But if you do look on the Hararuya site, there's nine decks listed. So I don't know about picking up Steam just yet. I mean, we, like Richard said, there's just not enough data to look at to say, like, oh, this is actually going to be really successful. Yeah, and their events are pretty small. Well, most of their deck lists, right. they're, they're like 10, 15 people events. So I mean, once yeah, there are twenty-three to twenty-five people, once there are sufficiently large events, that's when it will become yeah. more interesting. I agree with you, Richard. Next question from at empty car. Abs and Coco was tier one a few months ago, but not recently putting up any results. Any ideas why? I'm assuming this means modern. Yeah. Don't know. I mean, uh, it just seems like there's like this cycle of the deck to beat in modern, like. First, it was, like, not too long ago, we were talking about Dredge, and it was, like, the best deck ever. Then it just, it, before that, like, Abzan Coco was everywhere. Then it went to, what was it, Bantel Drazi, and now we're on Infect again. So it just kind of seems like these decks sort of, like, leapfrog for and vying for, like, flavor of the month. I'm actually not 100% sure what the specific reason is. Like, Chaz is right, there's definitely an ebb and flow, but I would assume that there's something more than that i don't know if it's the rise of dredge maybe that's a matchup that isn't good maybe it's uh, the fact that the rise of dredge means the rise of graph diggers cage which means your cocos and cords of calling are getting shut down by this fringe hate so i i don't know I don't know exactly what the answer is. I would have to do some research before I could really give you a firm answer on it. I think Seth hit, hit some key points there. Uh, with Dredge being on the rise, there's a lot of incidental hate. Graveyard hate hoses your combo. So does uh, Grafdigger's Cage. But also Infinite Life is not as good as it used to be. Uh, Tron can still kill you through Infinite Life with Ulamog. And Infect doesn't care about your life. So there are a lot of decks that are just hostile to Coco. So I think that... Plus, you know, the random hate you're getting uh, from people hitting against Dredge is kind of pushing the deck out of the format. Yep. From at Mr. Eloway, if Tezzeret has stolen inventions to build a portal to summon Eldrazi, how many people would quit magic for good? Uh, <laughs> me. Me for one. <laughs> See you I, later. I, I think I would check out for at least a little while. <laughs> I think they've learned their lesson. I think when they bring Eldrazi back, they're not going to put it in our face like Battle for Zendikar and they'll do a Shadows over Innistrad theme where the flavor of the plane is still there. So hopefully they've learned and the next time we see Eldrazi it's not terrible. (laughs) Everybody only gets one Peter. (laughs) At Maxi Wawa, what has magic taught you? Apart from how to win at magic. I haven't learned that yet. (laughs) (laughs) That is, I don't think I can trump that. (laughs) <laughs> I don't think, yeah, my, move along. <laughs> well said. Uh, do I have an answer? <laughs> I, I think magic has shown me how diverse people are. And I, I don't mean like social diversity. What I mean is everyone sees the same card, but you have so many people viewing it in a different light from your Timmy's to Johnny's to Spike's to your Vorthos. So I think that's a real eye opener that, you know, the same physical card or same idea can evoke so many different thoughts and emotions in different people 
which is yeah. pretty awesome, which is why I think Magic is as successful as it is today. It's it's definitely made me, and we're not like 100% there yet, but more humble in defeat. Uh, growing, I mean, I still am. I'm a very competitive person. I mean, to the point where like my brother and I would joke, like we would literally watch two ants like race each other just like just so we could get it. I mean, we're that competitive. So you know, with with the competitiveness, I was never really. I guess I was kind of a sore loser. So. Uh, it's definitely curved me a lot to be gracious in defeat as well as, you know, humble in victory. So that, uh, that's what I can say. So both you and Seth learned how to lose at magic. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. <definitely, yeah. laughs> uh, next question from at Urker Asylum. What are your thoughts on bringing back the core set now that we're back to once a year rotation? Let's undo no. all of the changes. <laughs> I, yeah, I no. like I think the two-set block cadence has been very good, so I don't yes. want to see that go away. Yeah, I do not want to... Don't fix what's not broken, exactly what Seth said. I mean, the two-set block cadence I'm totally good with. So far, I'm very impressed, and I do not want to detract or get off uh, get off track of that. Next question from at JC DePina. What is the likelihood of seeing an ancient stirrings banding in modern? Huh? <laughs> is that... Is... Is that a? I don't know if I understand the question. I, 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 is that, is I that understand no? the question. I I I think there's some uh, some better things to worry about than ancient stirrings right now. I, I think there's a lot of merit to this. It's it really shuts down Tron decks and shuts shuts down Aljazi decks. So it's almost on the level of banning an Ayavugan or something like that. Uh, the question is, do these decks need to be shut down? And I don't think they're that oppressive right now. But if you wanted to hit these decks, but not hit them so hard that they never come back, then Ancient Stirrings would be at the top of my list for hitting these decks. Because otherwise, you'd yeah. have to just ban Aldrazi Temple or an Urza Land, which is the death of these decks. Banning one Tron Land would actually be pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> what if they printed another Tron Land? And then you have then it's like cloud post or something. Yeah, but you, well, you have four Tron lands. You only need to assemble three. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean that is kind of interesting because if what the tower is three and the rest are two, mm-hmm. or if they just brought all of them to two, that would actually nerf the deck. I mean, I don't want wizards to turn into Hearthstone where they're like, <laughs> oh, this is too good, so we'll just like change the cards. I don't, I don't like that. That doesn't sit well with yeah. me. But it would make it a lot more fair if you couldn't turn three Karn. Something to think about. Although I still, I'm, I remain on my position that I, I think if we were going to look at ancient stirrings, it's probably lower on the totem pole than a lot of other cards at this point. All right. Next question from at Toolbar. Similar in fashion in graveyard hate. Do you expect to see any energy hate cards in Ether Revolt? <laughs> I don't think you can really hate on affinity or energy, right? Like a. Okay, maybe if they print something to the effect of there could be a creature or a spell or something that steals energy, I guess that's hating on it. But, oh, no, maybe they could just have something that eliminates your opponent's energy. I doubt it. I I think that if we see it, it'll be something like uh, remove all counters from target permanent or player something like that the thing that makes me nervous is wizards printed in fact and intentionally didn't print anything to interact with uh counters on players with poison counters so i kind of get the feeling that they might do that again with energy i'm not sure they want people to be able to uh, mess with the opponent's energy so i think it's possible and i think that's how they would do it but i'm not convinced that it will happen wait so malira does that right but i i think you're right burn the impure <laughs> ian duke i think said at the pro tour that they simply do not make these cards anymore because they don't want to nullify an entire set's mechanic which is why you don't see rest in peace anymore which is why you're not going to see rest in peace for energy at most i think they might give you a a creature that when you attack you can siphon one energy from your opponent to pump it kind of like you know long tusk cub or whatever but your opponent's energy but they're not going to give you rest in peace for energy because they just don't want you to invalidate all of kaladesh with a sideboard card so i think that's their stated stance on this 
I don't, I don't like that stance. <laughs> I think that, uh, and I, I'm going to write a whole article about this. I've been thinking about it since I wrote this article about the changes to rotation, but I think that's something we need. I think that part of what makes long standard formats, like we're going to see with slower rotation, uh, palatable are sideboard hate cards like rest in peace, like stony silence that they don't have to come in the same block. Ether revolt doesn't have to hate on, uh, the first set of its block, but in Amonkhet or in the fall block, I think we need to get back to printing reasonable hate cards because when we have a broken thing like Collected Company, that's just the best thing in the format, two years is a long time. And something like a Graph Digger's Cage would go a long way towards making Standard much, much less miserable if we're going to be stuck with cards like that for a longer period of time. It's definitely a good point. But what if you miss your triggers, Seth? <laughs> too soon? Too soon? All right. Oh. Too soon. <laughs> so that's all our fish meal for this week. If we didn't get to your question on air, we'll answer them over social media. Thank you, everyone, for sending those in. And uh, gentlemen, I think that's a wrap. This is going to be the MTG Goldfish crew signing out. We will do this again next week. See you then. <laughs>